And so we've come in John 7 to verse 25. Remember the setting? It is the middle of the week, which is the week of the Feast of Booths or, or Feast of Tabernacles. Christ Jesus did not go with his family. <clears throat> they would go in a caravan. He would arrive secretly more in the middle of the week. And immediately he begins to teach in the temple. This is what we saw last time. In his teaching and in his preaching, he declared that he knew they were seeking to kill him. And the response of the crowd at that point was, you have a demon who's trying to kill you. So keep that in mind as we continue in this context. Verse 25, therefore some of those of Jerusalem were saying, now the crowd appears to be a little bit divided, but it should be noted that Jesus is increasingly being rejected by the people. Remember just a chapter or two earlier, the pinnacle of his ministry was his feeding the thousands and thousands and thousands. And they continued to follow him until he said, I am the bread of life and you won't make it without me. And you essentially must eat my flesh and drink my blood. There's only one way to be saved. So people began to reject him. And they began to reject him in a, a wholesale fashion. His family, his followers, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. He is in the fall of the year before the time of the next Passover that would come in the spring, which will be the Passover of his death. So he's about six months here from the cross. Some of the Jerusalem people were saying, is not this whom they seek to kill? So that up what back in verse 20 or so was uh, not really a, a serious statement. They really didn't even believe what they said because they said he had a demon since he had accused some of the crowd of conspiring to, to kill him. So here they acknowledge that there are, there are leaders who are seeking to kill Jesus. Behold, he speaks publicly. They never, they never say anything to him. Truly the real rulers have recognized that this is the Christ. But this man, we know where he is from. But the Christ, whenever he may come, no one knows 
where he comes from. There's all kinds of delusion here uh, regarding the doctrine of the Christ and what these people should have known. In Matthew chapter 2, the, the, the wise men came and inquired where they could find the king of the Jews, the Messiah. The, the chief priests, those, the scholars, they immediately replied, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so they went to honor him. And then, of course, Herod took that information to kill all of the male children, infants. The point being that people knew that he was to be born in Bethlehem. So this is not, this is not saying very much. Whenever he may come, no one knows where he's coming from. We don't know when, we don't know where. All of that is not true for the serious student of the scriptures. There was a high expectation during the time of Jesus for the arrival of the Messiah. Because Daniel, in, the, in, in, in Daniel's writings, in his prophecy, he prophesied of the, of the 70 Shabbats, the 70 weeks, they're translated, 70 sets of seven-year periods. And he even gave the date of when the clock would begin ticking, and that would be with the edict to go and rebuild Jerusalem. So... Anybody could count the calendar and know that they are, they are arriving at the time, which was, a, which was the close of the 69th seven-year period. Daniel wrote that he would come forth and he would not receive his kingdom and he would be murdered. Cut off, the Hebrew, it means he would be murdered. And that would close the, the contiguous, the straight running of the 69 seven-year periods. And it would, it would introduce an interruption. And the 70th seven-year period has yet to be lived out, has yet to come to fruition on planet Earth, which is the tribulation. So we're living in that, that time of interruption, the time of the Gentiles. Anyone who read the scriptures and studied it would know when and where because Micah 5 said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Now it said that he would come forth from eternity, but coming forth from eternity, he would come through Bethlehem. Anybody would have known that. So there's a, there's a strange denial, a delusion among the people But look at what the people are saying. Okay, so here are people from everywhere. Thousands and thousands of people because this is one of the three festivals. The attendance to which was required by all the Jewish men, 30 years old and older. So they wouldn't, I guess, have had 
those who are coming from outlying areas come from as far as they could, wouldn't have had the rabbinical teaching. So we'll, we'll cut them a little slack. But there was some kind of prevailing mindset here that the Messiah would just walk through a portal and appear. That seems like what they're saying. We don't know when he's coming. We don't know where he's coming. From whence he comes. Not true. That Christ Jesus was born in Bethlehem was recorded because in the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went forth, remember? Carefully designed by God, Christ has undeniable credentials for Messiahship. The complete affirmation would have been the miracles that he had performed. But the teaching, that last part of the, oh, it's wonderful to listen to the teaching of the king and the kingdom and all the evil nations will collapse and be destroyed by the great Messiah and all. That's great, man. Until you get to that part where you have to be, where you have to come under indictment for sin. You have to agree with God that you are a sinner and helpless and that there is no way you can save yourself. That flies in the face of Judaism and in the practice and tradition of the Jews that goes back for generations. How can he say this? That he is the only one by whom we may be saved. So we don't really know. Have the rulers, are they, are they rethinking the doctrine of the Christ? But this guy, he, he's, he's a carpenter. He's the carpenter's son. We know his brothers. We know his family. He grew up around here. The Christ, whenever he may come, nobody knows where he's coming from. Well, Jesus responded. Therefore, Jesus cried out. Now that, that Greek word, ekrets, that's the strongest word for yelling. High yelling. There is one other Greek word, anaba, that, that speaks of a, an excruciating scream. But this is the strongest word for a person who is really within himself, bringing forth all that he has to, to declare, to cry out, to yell at the top of his voice. So Christ is teaching emotionally. Therefore, Jesus cried out in the temple and saying, you know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself but the one having sent me is true. And you don't know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Virgin born Christ. The shepherds were there when the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angel announced his birth, his arrival. 
So many wonderful things surrounded his birth. The scriptures affirmed that this is the way the Christ would come. And here's what Jesus says. The problem is not that you don't know me. The problem is that you don't know God. You see, the Bible is the word of God in Christ. It is the revelation of the Christ of God. It reveals the true and living God and speaks to us through this word, both written and incarnate, the Christ. It is the word of God. The whole thing is about God. And if it's about God and I'm his creature, then in a very secondary sense, it's, it's about me and my knowledge of God. And I cannot know God apart from his Christ. That's what Psalm 2 says. The, the, the Old Testament stands on that truth. And of course, the New Testament reveals it even further. I cannot know the true and living God apart from Jesus the Christ. There is no other way to know the true and living God. Any other, any other so-called monotheistic religion is just that. It's just a religion. It's not reality. You cannot know God. This is the word of God. These people... Do not know God. But I know him, he says, I'm from him. Well, that has been proven with all of these miracles. I mean, miracles from changing the weather to raising the dead and everything in between. The greatest of miracles to raise himself from the dead and then to ascend into heaven. I am from him. I know him. He sent me. I am teaching you about God and you cannot go to God unless you come through me. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is the great rub against the Jewish leadership. Therefore, because of that, they were seeking to take him. But here's further proof of the sovereign hand of God. But no one laid the hand upon him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. This is proof that he is from God and that nothing can happen to him until he has completed his earthly ministry, which culminates, of course, in the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection. So for all of their conspiracies, and we're going to see in a minute that the Pharisees, all the leadership they're, they're, they're getting together with all the other leadership and they're sending out their officers, their temple guards, their, their P 
people who keep peace in the temple. They're sending them out to find Jesus and to seize him and to take. They can't do it. There's nothing that can be done to him until the father says so. So he's, he's, he's literally indestructible. And then is arrested only because he allows it. Not because the crowd does it. Now out of the crowd, many believed in him and were saying, the Christ, when he comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now let's, let's understand this. Stay with me here. There is a thing called a conditional sentence. It's the if then. If this, then this. It has four levels. It it has four parts. This is the second level of a conditional sentence, but in the Greek construction, it's in the interrogative. It's a question which means that it demands a negative answer, all right? So this, this second tier, this second level of a conditional sentence is the condition of assumed unreality. So here's what they're saying. The Christ, when he comes, will not do more than what this guy's done. Remember, we've referenced the end of the book of John where he says, you know, Jesus did so many things, we just couldn't keep up with it all. We couldn't write it all. There are enough books and there are enough scribes. We couldn't, the world couldn't contain the library of books that would have written down everything that Jesus did in his time on earth during those years of ministry. So it's, it's, there are selected miracles that are given to us by the design of God, inspired by God through the hands and pens of the gospel writers. But there are so many other things that he did that we're not told because we're told enough so that we can grasp the reality of God the Son in the flesh on planet Earth. But so many other things. So these people had seen many of the miracles and had heard about so many more from so many people. And the point is, the Christ when he comes can only live in a 24 hour period during a day. He'll have to have some rest and there's no way that he could do more than this man has done. Probably so many of them in that crowd had even been healed by Jesus. Had had demons cast out by the power of the Christ. So there is this murmuring, this grumbling, these questions among the crowd as Jesus teaches in the temple. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him 
and sent the chief priests and the Pharisees who sent officers. There should be a little thing that said, who sent officers? That they might seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, I'm with you yet a little time. Jesus knows he's on a divine timetable. He's headed to the Passover, which is about six months from October to about April. About six months later, Christ will be crucified. And so Christ says, I'm only with you just a little time. And I go to the one having sent me. And then Jesus says, the most dreadful thing that he could say to anybody. You will seek me and will not find me. You see that word, zetesete. You will, you will demand, you will require me but you won't be drawn because you're requiring me in the wrong way. You don't know me, you don't know God, you don't even know what it means to seek me. As a matter of fact, Romans says, we don't seek God, God seeks us. There's so many ways to interpret what Jesus says. First of all, he, he's saying to the leaders, you're going to keep trying to lay hands on me, but you're not going to be able to find me. That's one of the things that he's saying. Another of the things that he's saying is that I have presented myself to you as the bread of life. Later he'll say, I'm the living water. But you've rejected that and you won't, you, you're trying to come to God, but you won't come only through me. You think that you have the power and that um, I'm something other than who I am. You don't know me. You will seek me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you are not able to come. Dunaste, you are not empowered to come. disqualified from heaven. I, I can't think of anything more horrible that Jesus could say to a group of people than to say to them after they'd heard all of his teaching and after he had presented himself and after he had held the mirror in front of their faces and made them all realize that they were sinners. They thought they were obeying the law, but there's no way to obey the law. We're sinners. We're lost. We're helpless. We can't do anything of ourselves for ourselves. After all that Christ had said, after all that Christ had done, you will seek me and I'll be gone. You won't find me. And where I am, you are not able to come. 
You know, heaven is not for everybody. The great task of teachers and preachers is to do our best to teach people who God is and who Christ is and who God in Christ is, who Jesus is. The great task of disciples is to seek to learn about him more and more. It is an inexhaustible life's journey. It will never stop. All of the years that you live, you will to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, a true disciple. I fear that there is so much today and through the centuries that has been offered through the church that is extra biblical, unbiblical, non-biblical, such that even people who sit in the pews do not know who Jesus is. John has presented him in the most powerful way as we study him, the creator. God who lays aside his deity, becomes a man, teaches us about ourselves and about him, and then dies for us after he has taught us that he is the only way. And we learn about a loving heavenly father who would give his only son that he would die for me that I might live in him, through him. Christ says to the multitudes who have watched him perform miracles and heard his teaching, they even said, we've never heard teaching like this before. There was something magnetic about his teaching. And the final point was simply this, you can't be saved apart from me. You'll have to come to me and you can't come to me until you admit that you are a sinner that there is nothing in yourself to save yourself. The law cannot save you. Your behavior cannot save you. Your man-made morals cannot save you. You have to come to me and let me change your life. You must be born anew from above. And you can't come unless the Father draws you to me. But you will seek me and I won't be there. And you'll want to go to heaven where I am, but you won't be able to come. You can't come in. I can't think of anything worse that Christ could say to a group of people than to say, you will seek me and I won't be there. You'll want to come where I am, but you won't be able to come because you didn't just come to me. You see, our only hope is Christ. We study and study and pray and pray and grow closer to Christ and the more we realize it's all of him and none of me and that's where we're supposed to be. Collapsed, helpless, at the feet 
of a sovereign God who gave his only son to die for us. There's no hope in myself, in me. There's no hope that I could do anything to save my, not one thing. Even coming to Christ is by the power of God. And will heaven give me an amen on that? You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you are not able to come. Now, when you try to excuse yourself from the teaching and the reality of Christ as our only Savior, like these guys did, then you ask dumb questions. Therefore, the Jews said among themselves, where is he about to go that we won't find him? And here's, and we talked about the second state of a conditional. Here's the fourth state of a conditional question, but it's in the, it's in the interrogative again. He's, he's, not to, he's not about to go and teach to the dispersion among the Greeks, is he? Now that's, that's an assumed possibility. That's the fourth state of the conditional sentence. And the other one was an assumed unreality. This is an assumed possibility. We know, wait a minute, we know what he's doing. He's going to go seek out the Hellenic Greeks, the, 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 the Hellenic Hebrews, the Greek speaking. He's going to go there and he's going to start his work with them. What is this word that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you are not able to come. You are not able to come to him. He comes to you. You don't bring yourself to him. He draws you to himself. The father draws you to the son. That's why conviction of sin is such a precious thing. The power of God to break through the deadness of what I am. I am dead in trespass and sin. I am in a fallen state, enslaved to sin unless and until God awakens me and draws me to Christ and takes me out of the darkness and puts me in the light. Otherwise, it will never, ever happen. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 55, Come to him while he may be found. Come near to him while he is near. If you have that sensitivity, you see, that's of God. You, you don't create that from within yourself. The conviction of sin, the sense of helplessness, the profound and overwhelming need for a savior and the divine knowledge that comes into your heart that there's only one Savior, Jesus.
That's from above. Then everything changes. Born anew from above. Everything changes. Everything. Things that were important to me. Things that I thought I had to do. All of those things, as Paul said, are just dung. Waste. They're nothing. And then when we come to Christ, Christ works through us. And anything that happens then is not from me. It's the work of Christ in me. And those are the works that matter. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. God says it so simply in his word. If you will admit that you're a sinner, confess sin. To confess means to agree with what's said. To agree with God that you're a sinner. And then believe in Jesus, who is the only Savior, and call on him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a moment, we'll be dismissed from this room. But let me make this appeal to you. If you would be saved today, or if having been saved, you would come for baptism to obey the command of Christ, or you would come for church membership as a Christian, a believer, we stand ready to receive you and help you in any way that we can. So as you exit in just a moment after our benediction, there'll be deacons and wives just across the hall in the rooms ready to answer your questions, to pray with you, and to take care of any one or all three of those issues in your life. Let's prayerfully stand all over this room.